Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am tan, rested, and ready to talk about movies with friends. I am also ready to talk about movies with friends and happy to be doing so. But not tanned and rested? No. No, no. All right, before we get started, I just wanted to let you guys, the listeners out there know about a very exciting event. Peter, Alyssa, and I are going to be uh, hosting a screening of the Matthew Broderick Classic War Games at the Crystal City Alamo Drafthouse on Tuesday, May 16th at 7.30 p.m. We're also, I think, we're going to try, we're going to try this out, we're going to try to tape a bonus episode of the show, pending our ability to work out a few of the, the small technical things. But either way, we'll be there, and we'll be talking about the movie and the apocalyptic moment a film in the 1980s. Uh, tickets are on sale now, and they're only $7 because the screening uh, is part of the Big Freaking Deal Tuesdays. So cheap movie on the big screen where it's seen best with some tasty beverages if you want. You don't have to necessarily, but I, I would recommend it because that's how the Draft House makes their money. And uh, hosted by your favorite podcast, this one. This is your favorite podcast. I know it. You know it. We all know it. Hard to beat that. Uh, good deal. Hopefully... We will see you guys there. Very excited for it. And now on to controversies and non-troversies. Uh, the, the big news last week was Warner Brothers Discovery's announcement that they're getting rid of the HBO and HBO Max, rebranding their big app, Max. And uh, they're also moving most, but not all, of the Discovery Plus content onto Max, while also leaving Discovery Plus untouched. But some Discovery Plus content will be exclusive to Max. But not all Discovery Plus content will be on Max. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the cost is to remain the same for now, unless you want 4K and as many as 100 downloads, in which case the price is going up to $20, which means that for, the, for those of us with good TVs, the price is going up to $20. Unless, of course, I'm exempted from this because I get HBO via my cable provider and the new app Max is going to come uh, that way. I don't know. It's just going to show up on my TV sometime in May. It's going to be Max instead of HBO Max. I don't know. Here's the thing. From a marketing perspective, I am totally baffled by WBD's move here. I mean, literally just kind of confused. It's not clear to me what exactly is going to be on HBO Max. I'm sorry. I mean, Max. I don't know if I should if I should cancel my wife's beloved subscription to Discovery Plus, since I have no idea which home shows are going to make the transfer to HBO. I'm sorry, not HBO, just Max. Only Max, forever Max. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, I'm a person who's paid to know these things. So if I don't know, it's probably going to be a problem for your average consumer all around. Honestly, though, my big annoyance here is the decision to downplay the HBO and HBO Max because a certain segment of consumers is intimidated by the HBO brand. My even bigger annoyance is that uh, WBD is probably right to do that. HBO puts a ceiling on the brand in a very real way. A slice of the consumer population is just unlikely to subscribe to HBO, which is affiliated with highbrow stuff like Succession, even if its biggest hits involve zombies and, as Ian McShane once colorfully put it, tits and dragons. So you de-emphasize Barry, right? Barry, best half hour on TV that currently exists. Uh, and you re-emphasize Dr. Pimple Popper. And you watch the money roll in. That's the underpants gnome theory of this plan. It's not a terrible one, frankly. As the entertainment strategy guy described it, this is a little bit like popularism just for streaming. Popularism, of course, is the argument made by some liberal pundits that progressives should focus on doing things that are popular 
rather than getting sucked into niche idiocy like Democratic activists forcing senators in purple states to come out against fracking. Dumb. Don't do that. Uh, but rather than pushing candidates to take unpopular stances, they should be nudged into positions that poll well with the general electorate and progressive voters in particular. Ditto streaming, right? Rather than shoving stuff people uh, don't want to watch in their faces, the WBD crew wants to focus on low-calorie, low-effort fluff because that's what folks actually want to watch at home. That's what they get. They stream through it. They they just watch episode after episode. That's what they do. The ultimate goal here is to keep people within the ecosystem of the app, keep them scrolling through international house hunters to flip or flop for season after season. And again, probably the best way to do it. Uh, but it's still kind of sad that we live in a universe where a three-letter byword for excellence is a liability. Alyssa, should WBD be running from its most beloved brand in favor of reality slop if it, you know, wants to make money? I mean, probably, yes. I mean, I know that, I mean, David Zaslav is unpopular in, you know, the the tastier versions of the internet. Um, but he's not wrong that, you know, having blown up their core business model, all of these streaming services need to find ways to consolidate and brand themselves as essential to survive. And, you know, I am actually several seasons behind on Succession because I don't actually really like watching horrible rich people torture each other. But I sort of like the Succession. I'm like less all in on the second Tits and Dragons show. Um, but if several hundred thousand people watch your show, that's not enough to make a streaming service profitable. And, you know, a combination of like pimple popping and dragons is probably the way to go. This, I mean, I guess I get why people are up in arms about this to the extent that it's at all possible for me to understand why people care about sort of the branding of, you know, big corporate properties that are going through a weird transition because they were forced into an insane business model by Wall Street. But it just it seems fairly commonsensical and not that big a deal to the extent that it's a controversy. It is emblematic of the sort of constantly shifting strategies and renamings and positionings, not to mention the sort of weird, unpredictable content flow in between all of these services that has made what ought to have been a cheaper convenience for people just a huge headache. Well, can I I'll, I'll suggest one reason why this is at least a little controversial is that, you know, look, we've talked about this before, but the, what was the promise of streaming, right? The promise of cord cutting and streaming was always we're going to give you more options, more versatility. We're going to make it easier for you to watch this, but not that. If you want to bundle things together, uh, you can do that. There's a model for this. Disney. Disney does a pretty good job of it. They have their Disney Plus, Hulu and ESPN plus brands. If you want all three of them, you can subscribe to them for one lower price. If you only want one of them, you just subscribe to that one and it, and you'll save money because you don't want the other stuff. And I, I guess the thing I am most confused by is why HBO wants to move away from that idea and that model. I mean, I, I kind of understand why in a general level they want to keep people in one app, focus their attention, monopolize it, etc. But I still think it's a mistake. I think it's just a, a mistake to give people less freedom of movement, I guess. 
Well, why do you think this is less freedom of movement rather than a reorganization of the kinds of movement that uh, that they are allowed to have? It doesn't seem to me that it is obviously less, except in the sense that HBO Max, as we have known it, and Warner Brothers have been cutting from their streaming strategy already, even before the name change was announced. And that's uh, everything from removing shows that are being sold off uh, for rights elsewhere to, you know, the, the most prominent example was just completely eliminating Batwoman uh, from their... Uh, they're not going to release it, um, which was a decision that they made last year. I, I guess I think that this makes sense in some ways, but it was handled badly. So I'm like sort of in between you guys on this. It seems pretty obvious that what Warner Brothers needs to do or Warner Brothers Discovery, this whole the, this big corporation, is they need to have one place where you can sort of pay and get into their content. But then what they need to do is maintain the HBO brand within that as a niche. And what this seems like they're doing is trying to make it more so that people you know, will sort of not see this thing as primarily an umbrella of stuff underneath the HBO brand. But in the process, they are degrading or sort of downplaying the HBO brand, which is really quite valuable, not because it reaches a huge audience necessarily, but because it reaches a a very well-connected and relatively well-off audience. What HBO has always done is connect very well with upper-middle-class, college-educated, high-income households, especially sort of knowledge worker professionals types, right? And that goes back to the mid-1990s when I'm someday I'm going to have to look up the executive's name, but the the executive who uh, sort of decided... What I want are not shows that are well-reviewed in the LA Times and a variety. What I want are shows that are talked about on the op-ed page of the New York Times. That was the, the sort of the, the guiding strategy was let's go to political and cultural tastemakers. And so HBO has always has since then really effectively done that. And it seems to me like what HBO needs to be and what HBO at its best has always been in some sense is what Vertigo was for comic books starting in the 1980s and for as long as the Vertigo label lasted. So for for people who don't know the comic book world, Vertigo is the publisher of like sort of adult very smart, often literary comics. The signal example of this is uh, Sandman, um, the, the Neil Gaiman comic that ran from like 1989 through the 90s or something like that. And Vertigo was an imprint. It wasn't its own label, but it was kind of its own label. And you knew that when you were going to a Vertigo comic, that like when you were picking up a Vertigo comic off the shelves, you were getting something that was probably going to be higher quality, that was aimed more at adults, at more at sophisticated readers. There were occasional sort of crossovers with the wider DC Comics universe, uh, although those were reined in later in, in the later years of Vertigo. But it wasn't its own company. It wasn't its own thing. It was a brand within the DC Comics universe. And it seems to me like what Max needs to do and what the strategy needs to be here is we've got a big thing for everyone that we're going to call it Max or we're going to call it Warner Brothers or Discovery or whatever we could call it. Dumb shows for people who like dumb shows, right? Like, which they're hilariously, like they're almost literally advertising this as the streaming television now with dumb shows too, right? Like there, there's a quote uh, from one of the, the people on the team here. Dropping HBO from the name is cementing that we're not just going to be a home for premium programming. We're the home for anything you want to watch, right? So it's literally like, if you liked good stuff, well, we've got more than that. Bad shows too, right? So it, I, I guess I just sort of see like, like you need to be able to like go into the Max portal and then find the HBO zone that is not necessarily walled off in the sense of 
you have to pay more to access it, but that is walled off in that it has a distinct identity of its own and is filling the HBO niche within the corporate portfolio. And I think, you, as you've said, Sonny, Disney has done a, a good job of this, not just in terms of segregating out Hulu and segregating out ESPN, but also within the Disney Plus app. You can just watch Star Wars. You can just watch Marvel. You know that you can just go to the home of those things and those brands, and there are sub-brands underneath Disney. That's what HBO needs to be for Max, Warner Brothers, Discovery, whatever the hell they're going to call it now. Right. And going back to the Disney example, look, the Disney and Hulu have done a pretty good job of this with the uh, FX on Hulu tab, yes. right? There's there's the FX on Hulu vertical, whatever you want to call it, uh, on, on Hulu. And that's where FX's stuff lives. FX is probably the best non-HBO cable network out there. I, I guess as best as I can tell, most of their stuff is on Hulu now, but not all of it. Again, this there's there are branding issues here that I struggle to see how the average the consumer... The FX on Hulu thing is probably the closest to what I'm talking about, but I actually agree with you. It's not totally clear which shows go to FX, the TV network, which shows go to the FX part of Hulu and which shows maybe do both or only one of the two or like for which time, like it's, it is a little bit non-obvious, even if you're like, you follow this stuff like we do. There's been a weird dilution of the FX brand too. I mean, they, Disney really made a play to try and use it to, you know, create a sort of HBOification of Hulu and did it at a time when FX's programming honestly hit a little bit of a rough patch. Um, And so it's produced a kind of, Diffusion that has also not been helped by Ryan Murphy, who did a lot of the sort of mega franchises for FX, spending more time on his not very successful Netflix deal. So they've they've been in a weird place. Uh, To defend Ryan Murphy, not very successful until he got into the serial killer business, because those, you know, those those the Dahmer and uh, the Watcher. At the same time, if they what did they pay him, like five hundred million dollars? Like all of these things are unsustainable. Yeah, yeah. that's a that's secondary question uh, for for another time, probably when the strike starts. We'll we'll come back to that, I'm sure. All right. uh, So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that the HBO and HBO Max is a weight around the neck? Of the streaming service. Uh, Peter? Well, it's a little bit upsetting, but it's probably the correct decision from a business perspective, even if I think the handling has been a little bit imperfect. Alessa? It's a non-controversy. It's mild controversy because uh, people should be forced to consume good things. You take your vegetables, young man, and you eat them. That's what I say to the consumers out there. Eat your vegetables, and HBO is vegetables. So, All right, make sure to swing over by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. We're going to be discussing the best movies of the 21st century so far. So far. Uh, speaking of the best movies of the 21st century, on to our main event, Murder Mystery 2. Uh, okay, got to pull. I'm going to pull back the curtain here for a second. As you guys know, we were off last week for various reasons, mostly related to travel and vacations. Um, just couldn't get the show to work. Didn't did not work on a uh, from a scheduling point of view. When I got back to Dallas on Tuesday, I was feeling a little under the weather, and on Wednesday, I was basically dying. So I, t- I took a COVID test. Turns out I had COVID. Caught it during my travels. Boohoo for me. I'm fine now. Don't worry. But I could not go to the theaters to see the Super Mario Brothers movie or Air or Renfield or even The Pope's Exorcist. Couldn't even see The Pope's Exorcist. Um, did not want to risk infecting others. Don't want to bring shame upon the movie theater house. 
So I'm being a, being a good boy and staying home. Um, so what, what were we going to watch? What were we going to talk about? Uh, well, riffing on the cons and ons this week, we decided to watch something that will likely end up being watched by more people than all four of those movies combined. Yes, even the Super Mario Brothers, which is doing huge, huge business. That's right. That's what we're talking about. The new Adam Sandler movie on Netflix, the sequel to Murder Mystery, one of Netflix's most watched movies ever. And the new one has been piling up great viewer numbers for uh, Netflix. You'll take a look at their charts. It's totaled over 124 million hours in its first two weeks. It's also resurrecting interest in the previous entry in the series, which uh, has been the second and then third most watched movie on the service these last two weeks. It's a huge hit. Murder Mystery 2 was something like the platonic ideal of a Netflix movie. It's incredibly easy to watch. It's the sort of thing you have on in the background while you're pecking away on your smartphone or you're doing your taxes. Not speaking from experience here or anything. It's incredibly popular with viewers because Adam Sandler remains incredibly popular with viewers. His movies all tend to pop for the service. And there's a reason they gave the Sandman and his production company mid nine figures to make movies for them over the last decade or so. And while I I don't know the actual budget here, I'd guess that it was relatively cheap when compared to something like Red Notice or The Gray Man. It's not a huge, big, spectacular FX type movie. It's in the FX that are in it or shall we say efficiently done. The The plot is almost aggressively simple. And you dumb. loved uh, all the digital fire, didn't you? No, no comment. No comment. Uh, Sandler and Aniston uh, play a private investigator, husband and wife team who head to a tropical island paradise for the wedding of their wealthy friend, the Maharaja. While there, the Maharaja gets kidnapped. Bodies start dropping. They have to figure out who did it and why. They go to Paris for some reason, yada, yada. None of this matters. What does matter is that Sandler and Aniston uh, have genuine chemistry. Listener, I'm not proud of myself, but I was literally just sitting in my bed recovering from COVID, cackling, just cackling like an idiot at uh, their old married couple interplay. They're not even really making jokes. They're just vibing with each other. That's This is the cinema of vibes, man, and the vibes are good. Peter, is this the sort of lowest common denominator fluff that the people really want. Am I the people now? Is this what Max should be aiming for? <laughs> I do think there are some lessons here for for Max. I'm not going to say it like you do, as, as enjoyable Max. as that would be, um, right? Like a sort of angry, annoyed sheep noise. Um, right. So this movie is not good, but it's also not pretentious. It doesn't signal to you that it is good. It doesn't demand that you think it's good. It just sort of delivers on its promise in a very basic way. I think the promise that it makes is not really one that I that I would care to engage with if it weren't for some professional responsibilities here. But there is something appealing about a movie that doesn't take itself in, and not just not too seriously, but at all seriously, and then says, hey, viewers, you don't have to either. Like, we're all here to just kind of enjoy ourselves and, and like, not worry too too much about it. Um, it made me think of a couple of things. One is James Patterson. So James Patterson is a famous thriller novelist uh, who turned himself into a brand by using co-writers, which is to say, basically ghostwriters who, who he would work with. Uh, often he would outline the plots and then they would do the writing and then he would do a rewrite pass on the novels. And this allowed him to publish, in some cases, 10, 12 novels a year, whereas most novelists who are very successful, you know, or very productive, I should say, would maybe be writing uh, and publishing one novel a year. And James Patterson, I might be botching this quote because I, I don't have the source for it right in front of me, but there was a profile of him uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago that has stuck with me for a long time. 
And he talked about how, as he sort of developed his plan for becoming a, a super successful, like super productive writer and thinking about like, I just want to sell books, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to like, I'm not out there trying to be literary. I'm trying to meet people who he said he wanted to write books for people who were afraid of the idea of reading a book. And there is a way in which Murder Mystery 2 is a movie for people who don't want to go through all the effort and trouble of actually watching a movie. But, you know, it, it's like there's a movie here if that's what you want from it. And there's some stuff that's kind of that's kind of cute and kind of works. And it is the same sort of appeal of like, let's not in any way pretend that there's anything going on here except like a, a kind of very basic. We'll make a promise to, to amuse you for exactly 90 minutes and i think 53 seconds or something like that 82 minutes really if you if you don't count all the netflix credits the the timer uh, on the screen reads one hour 30 minutes and some number of seconds plus whatever the credits are and it's just like okay i i cannot bring myself to hate this because even though it's not any good it's also it also doesn't look down on its audience it doesn't pretend to be anything it's not and it's not truly wretched which it could have been. I want to ask Alyssa about this because Alyssa, you were texting us. You were like, "This movie's bad," and I like I, I intellectually understand and agree with you. But like, I would rather watch this ten times out of ten than the George Clooney Julia Roberts movie that we we talked about, uh, Ticket to Paradise. I think Sandler and Aniston have actual genuine chemistry. They look like they're having fun, but they also look like they're like properly annoyed with each other when they need to be annoyed. And they're they're like they just feel real. They feel real in a very like kind of silly sort of way that I found deeply appealing. And that's all this movie is really trying to do is be goofy, charming fun. Um, So I should confess that. I think that I might have like a medically diagnosable allergy to Adam Sandler. Um, <laughs> it's the neck beard, isn't it? Probably my favorite Sandler productions are like the Hanukkah songs that he used to release in like the late 90s, early aughts. Like it's like that uncut gems and like he's not terrible in Spanglish. Uh <laughs> You know, it's this is not fair to Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, if you listen to this podcast, I'm sorry. It's not you. It's definitely me. I just find him grating in a way that I cannot really deal with. And I can kind of – I can manage in something like Uncut Gems where the point of the movie is for you to find him grating and to be like just so unbearably tense in his company that it works – but I just – I don't find Adam Sandler an enjoyable presence. It's like the sort of whining tone that he has perfected as like his sort of signature shtick just kind of prevents me from connecting with him as an actor. And, you know, I can be persuaded to sort of sit through any number of like not very good romantic comedies, although Ticket to Paradise was awful. Like There's just a certain amount of junk that I enjoy, but like – Adam Sandler flavored disposable entertainment. Um, I was about to say Adam S- Sandler flavored junk, and then was just like, no, I should not say that on a podcast. Uh, too late. <laughs> Gonna isolate too late. that. Um, just like it's it's not my thing. It's like you know, if I have a choice between like Chex Mix and Funyuns, I'm gonna go with the Chex Mix. And so I am constitutionally ill suited to enjoy this movie, even watching it as Netflix intended which was like, well, 
chopping vegetables to meal prep for the week, right? Like I I watched this exactly the way that you're supposed to do it with the like, you know, 62% of your attention that you're supposed to allocate to it. It does have one good joke, which is Mark Strong saying, there's only one thing I hate more than witnesses, and that's the French as justification for blowing up the Eiffel Tower. And like, as jokes about the destruction of French cultural heritage go, like, that's a good joke. That's a solid joke. But it was the one time in the movie that I like really laughed. Not every movie has to be pretentious. Not every movie has to aim to be great art. But, like, vibes kind of aren't enough for me in a movie like this. I don't know. I just... Well, I mean, if you don't like Adam Sandler, you're not going to like this movie. And, the, yeah. like, the problem here, Alyssa, and I, I hate to tell you this, is that you you actually are a medical uh, freak of nature. Because everyone... It's... Many people love Adam Sandler. He, they, he's built a whole, they built a whole Netflix empire around him appealing to the masses. And that's okay, right? It's like my Netflix, you know, sort of junk stuff is going to be like all of the Shonda Rhimes Bridgerton stories stuff. Like, I will watch that stuff until the cows come home. And that is not like your collective cup of tea, and that's okay. But yeah, I just... I'm sorry, Adam Sandler. I feel like I'm being, you know... You failed him. I feel like... You failed Adam hating. Sandler. Can we... Her, I mean, I'm sure... He'll rest well on his, like, enormous pile of money. Can we talk a little bit more about the Ticket to Paradise comparison? Because I think that one is actually interesting and really relevant. So in some ways, Ticket to Paradise is a better movie, not maybe overall, but in some of the specific aspects of it. And in particular, when we watched that movie, we talked about the kind of effortless, like, real big screen charisma that both Clooney and and Julia Roberts have. And there's that monologue in the middle of the movie where George Clooney talks about his house that is not actually all that well written and not even really all that pivotal a scene in the scheme of the of the very underwritten plot of that movie, but incredibly well delivered. And it just works because George Clooney is really good at his job. There are not many people who can make a scene like that work in the way that George Clooney can. And so in some ways, it's a better movie in the sense that there is actual real talent uh, that is like there's quite unique and quite sort of difficult to access, even if it's used badly. And I think I didn't like the movie and I felt like overall it was really underwhelming. Didn't work overall. This movie doesn't have anything close to that in terms of though, in terms of like, oh, that actually really worked. And that was a moment of the kind you can't get. Like, that's why you go to the movies, even if the movie doesn't work is like it doesn't have anything like that. At the same time, it gets us close enough for, I think, many viewers, maybe even most viewers, that this kind of movie, Murder Mystery 2, is the reason why why rom-coms, why adult dramas, maybe not adult dramas of the super sophisticated Oscar kind, but like a certain kind of of notch spectacle driven movie is going to disappear from theaters or at least or like slowly like nearly disappear and the reason is that murder mystery 2 is mm, it's it's red baron pizza right it's it's like it's it's frozen pizza from the from the the grocery store aisle and in most cases it's good enough even though it's obviously not as good as delivery or like the really good you know stuff that you get in brooklyn or whatever your favorite pizza city is right it's it's just sort of fills the the gap there and as a result it's going to keep people from going to the movies because enough people will look at this and think ah 
why am I going to go pay 20 bucks to, you know, 20 bucks for myself, a hundred dollars, you know, once you include a babysitter to go see a rom-com featuring two big, you know, fancy stars who I've heard of. Right. Like when I can just watch this at home for whatever my $21 a month on Netflix is. I mean, this is, this is the whole Netflix model, or at least with regard to Adam Sandler is that Adam Sandler had hit a point in his career where he was not a box office draw anymore. He had like kind of aged out of that category of, of folks who, uh, were regularly going to the movies, but he was still he was still very, very popular with people who watch movies at home. You know, there's a reason that like Big Daddy and Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison were on constant rotation on TBS, Comedy Central, whatever, is because those are very popular movies. People like to kind of sit around and just hang out with the Sandman. This is and Adam Sandler is in some ways a triumph of the Netflix model of giving gigantic deals to, uh, yes. Yes. to creatives or sort of or stars uh, of some sort, because like he has I mean, he he got a huge amount of money, but it appears to have paid off for Netflix, at least as well as any of these things can be said to have paid off in a world where movies don't make actual box office revenues. I also think there's one other thing that you can take away from the comparison um, with Ticket to Paradise that shows, like, why this movie is appealing. And it's – there is this sense of – you can see another version of this movie that, especially in the early going, makes a lot of fun of the two main characters as they encounter a set of traditions that they're not familiar with. And, like, part of what is sour and unpleasant about Ticket to Paradise is the two main characters' attitudes towards, like – the idea that their daughter could, like, be happy with, like, a Balinese, you know, seaweed farmer or whatever, right? And, like, they're tense in the situation. They're uncomfortable. They're simultaneously sort of condescending and unable to adapt. And instead of, you know, sort of making fun of these characters as rubes and murder mystery, it puts them in a situation where they're super out of their depth and, like, just sort of accepts that they'll figure it out. You know, you have the scene where, like, you have the sort of big dance scene where— like Jennifer Aniston's character, whose name I literally can't remember despite no idea. this movie yesterday. No idea. Um, <laughs> Jennifer you know, Aniston like, does not remember the name of her character in this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's yeah. just Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler as far as I'm concerned. Yes, she's like the role that bought me my Maybach. That's the name of this character. Um, and, you know, she's like missed the instructions for like being in this very complicated dance sequence. And you know what? She like kind of wings it and they both figure it out and they're okay, right? Like, the movie doesn't, like, make a joke about cultural appropriation when they're, like, when she's, like, wearing a sari. Like, you know, a critical twist involves her, like, knowing something about how henna works, not because she knows a lot about, you know, the use of henna in, like, Indian wedding traditions, but because she's a hairdresser. Like, there is this sort of cultural ease and, you know, if not quite competence, like, you know, an assumed, like, ability of adults to rise to the occasion. And it doesn't have some you know, sort of weird, sour self-consciousness about the characters encountering a culture different from their own. And that was probably the most appealing part of the movie to me, is that, like, you have these characters who are, like, not, you know, they're not rich, they're not famous, they're not, like, they have not traveled this way before. And the movie neither sort of condescends to them, nor does it make jokes at the Indian character's expense. It's just, like, there's an ease to it um, that actually in some ways feels more sophisticated than Ticket to Paradise. I would say the the crucial scene here in what you're describing, which I think is right. I think that's, the, again, the vibes on this movie are great. There's a, a joke kind of early on where Jennifer Aniston is piling food on her plate because she's so used to Adam Sandler's character stealing from her that she wants, yeah. she wants to have plenty of it, which is, again, that is a familiar sensation, I think, for a lot of married couples, right? 
and this kind of snobby uh, British woman, I think. She's a is, countess. The countess. She's a countess of some sort. She's French, maybe. I don't know. Says Fresh like, off oh, the cast of Downton Abbey. Did you did you get enough there or some something like that? Like making fun of Jennifer Aniston, making her feel small. And uh, you just know, you just know when this happens that that character, that mean character later is going to get her comeuppance. And she sure does. It's great. It's one. This is a movie where things pay off pretty much exactly like you want them to, which is uh, which is nice. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Murder Mystery 2? Peter. Thumbs down, but it's interestingly representative. Alyssa. Thumbs down, but that's my fault. Thumbs up. This is a great movie. Number one movie of the year so far. <laughs> Adam Sandler can do no wrong. Jennifer Aniston, lovely as always. No, look, I, I will say, no, it's a thumbs up for what it's trying to be, which is a Netflix original. It is a perfect Netflix original. This is this is what they should be making and not the power of the dog and not all these other nonsense prestige movies. Roma. They should be making Adam Sandler fluff. 17 times a year. That's just a, just put him in everything. Just had drop him in computer animated wise into everything and have him run around. They'll, they'll be much better off that way. Looking forward right. to Adam Sandler's red notice too. <laughs> All right. That's it for this week's show. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Buy tickets to the live show. It's Tuesday, May 16th at the crystal city Alamo draft house. Go make sure you, you check it out. There'll be a link in the email. You'll, you'll find it there. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.